1: and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour.
2: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And John, I had an interesting week last week because I was galling around the battlefields of Sicily. And one of the guys who has been on an earlier tour that I've done and was there last week was called Kevin Milan. And Kevin um, is an American and his dad was in the 82nd Airborne. And actually, we read his father's story out out on uh, Family Stories a, a little while ago. By anyway, you know, we were going from A to B from one of the places we were looking at in Sicily, and he, he said to me, why, you know, why, why don't you talk about, uh, have a discussion on the influence of the Civil War, and particularly Ulysses Grant, on those West Pointers who kind of went through and ended up being senior generals in, in the Second World War? And I said, that's a really good idea. Let me put that to John right now. So I then <laughs> WhatsApped you. You came back, said, yeah, all over that like a rash. And uh, I went back to Kevin and said, yeah, John's up for that. <laughs> so here absolutely. we are. So, I mean, what, what a great subject and not one that I've given a huge amount of thought to, I have to say. But I mean, I know that sort of Patton, for example, is absolutely obsessed with the Civil War, not least because he had a grandfather who fought in it. But the long tentacles of the American Civil War and, and I guess particularly the kind of the changes that General Grant brought in, later President Grant brought in, run very deep, right? Absolutely.
3: I mean, they're still doing staff rides uh, for the Civil War now. So imagine back then, if you're an officer who's kind of coming a- of age in the early 20th century uh, when the Civil War is really the formative event on so many levels, I mean, this would have absolutely shaped your military training. And uh, the, the the most influential uh, Civil War generals, I'd say, or you know, certainly grant, but also Lee and Jackson, I think on many levels for those who were really studying like deep dive infantry tactics, Emory Upton, uh, is, is a guy who I think has a profound influence at, at the time. And those who studied him later, I think much profited from it, but, uh, yeah, you know, the, when I heard about that idea that, that Kevin had, I just thought, man, that, that is awesome. That's sort of in the wheelhouse because, um, <laughs> I've been struck by it, you know, that I did a, uh, uh, several years ago, I, I gave a uh, like a special talk at um, Kansas City Public Library and then at the Eisenhower Library uh, about the parallels, almost eerie parallels between Grant and Eisenhower. And hmm. I mean, it's it's just so similar. Their backgrounds are sort of similar. They're you know Eisenhower was born to humbler circumstances, I guess, but still they're they're kind of middle American, very unassuming. Both were infantry officers. Neither really liked their time at West Point. On many levels, you know, got a lot of demerits, and uh, um, you never necessarily mark them as people for high command. Uh, They were both people who did better in war than in peace, uh, you know, on some levels. They both uh, eventually are going to take a lot of criticism for their personal life. Grant for his drinking, Eisenhower for playing golf and bridge and and, and poker, and, and so on and so forth. Of course, both became presidents, and both were very unlikely. Both had, I think, a very kind of American attritional outlook to war. Uh, in, in war fighting, you know, I, I think that's one of the the secrets to their success.
0: Well, it's a numbers
3: game. In, in some respects, but also understanding maneuver uh, and understanding mm. firepower and understanding how economies work together with military power. Uh, they both had, had tremendous regard for their soldiers uh, and had that, that kind of rapport and affability, I think, on many levels. They're both really down-to-earth people. Uh, which also is a very American kind of characteristic in terms of our most successful commanders, Patton and MacArthur notwithstanding. I think that the best ones tend to have that kind of rapport with the average soldier because of the idea that these are citizen soldiers. This is supposedly, you know, a country where the individual matters a lot. And uh, so they need to, to have that.
0: And you can certainly apply that, can't you, to Eichelberger, to Bradley, to to Simpson? Absolutely to ridgeway i mean they're all cut from that cloth i, I mean I, I guess that that sort of main crop of of the kind of eisenhower bradley's all that lot that they're they're at west point what sort of 1910 11 12 so just on the eve of the first world war aren't they so they're kind of it's 45 50 years after the end of the civil war
3: mm-hmm. yeah so i mean they're basically the inheritors of the civil war they're absolutely marked by it i mean so i'll give you some examples so here are some examples. Uh, MacArthur himself is a product of the Civil War. Um, his father, Arthur, was on the Union side and, uh, and earned the Medal of Honor for his valor at uh, the Battle of Missionary Ridge. It basically launches his military career. And then he meets this uh, Southern woman from Virginia uh, who's very much a uh, kind of an <laughs> unreconstructed Confederate and everything that kind of means. Okay, and so here's this unlikely union of these two people, and it's so controversial that her brothers would not attend the ceremony when she married this Yankee. Um, And so MacArthur is the product of of this union, and yet in his case, he really looks to like Lee and Jackson and that whole lost cause, you know, these were the greatest commanders ever kind of mentality. Eisenhower, by contrast, I think looks to Grant a little bit more. Now, to be sure, he studied Lee and Jackson and and many other commanders on the Confederate side, too. But I I think personally Grant had the most influence on, on Eisenhower when you look at how he actually operated. Um, Eichelberger is another example, who is a guy who was a product of the Civil War. His father's a Union veteran, his mother grew up in Port Gibson, Mississippi, and remembered the battle there and wounded soldiers being in their parlor or whatever uh, and helping taking, take care of them. So here's another kind of North-South Union. So Eichelberger was steeped in that from the earliest boyhood.
0: But isn't that amazing that, that you can have Second World War generals whose parents have fought in the Civil War?
3: Yeah, well, and the most famous one, I think, is Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr., whose father was a general on the Confederate side. Um, You know, and of course, in that instance, um, who's later
0: killed on Okinawa.
3: Yeah. And so Buck's dad, um, you know, was overage. He was in his 60s when when Buckner Jr. was born uh, because this was a second marriage and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so here's a guy who's, again, completely steeped directly in what his father had done during the Civil War. And everything that meant, and it's one of the things that influences him to go into a, a military career. And I think that's true of many others. Another great example is Ned King, Edward Ned King. Um, and in case, in case you know, people haven't heard of him, he's the the guy who uh, has to surrender the forces on Bataan. Um So Ned King was a uh, was a Southerner. Uh, so here's another white Southerner. You'd figure he's a kind of old South lost cause guy, big segregation guy. And, and you couldn't be more wrong if you figure that. And this is what I think is interesting about him. He's in command at a, like a two-star level in the Philippines. And he's telling his officers who come to join his army, racial distinctions are nonsense. People are the same. And you need to treat Filipinos like equals. Uh, and he, he's an opponent of segregation back home. And yet... He also has had this entire formative boyhood and early training around the Confederate battles and all that. He knows them intimately. The irony of ironies, he has to surrender at Bataan, uh, April 10th, 11th, 1942. It's the exact anniversary of when General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox. And so when King is, is going to, to, uh, to meet General Hama, the, the Japanese commander, He's got in his mind Lee's famous uh, statement that he makes when he knows he's checkmated at Appomattox. So now I will go to see General Grant and I would rather die a thousand deaths. So he's thinking in his mind, that's exactly what's going through his mind like a thousand times as he's going to meet the Japanese commander under very different circumstances, of course. But the Civil War is right there front and center, I guess, is is my point. Um, And I think that's true of a lot of people.
0: And there's not a single person who's gone through West Point at that stage who doesn't know the intimate details of the Civil War. They know all the battles. They know all the key players. They know the tactics. They understand the kind of logistical issues, all that kind of stuff. That That is just absolutely part and parcel of being a West, a West Point undergraduate cadet.
3: It is. I mean, they've studied them minutely, and they've walked a lot of the ground, uh, and they've even trained on some of the ground too.
0: Right. So a lot of staff rides going to Gettysburg and Chancellorville and all the rest of it. Absolutely. And maybe serve there. Like For instance, Eisenhower, uh,
3: famously during World War One, never deploys overseas. Where is he? He's in the Gettysburg area, uh, basically training troops very successfully. And it creates in him a kind of a love for that area, which eventually, once he retires, he builds his retirement home there and, and lives there just off the edge of the battlefield. So um, yeah, these places that, that were, you know, hallowed battlegrounds also became training grounds. Chickamauga is another example uh, during the Spanish-American War, and that's a little before the time a lot of these guys, although not, you know, Douglas MacArthur is just going to West Point around that time. So, you know, this wasn't that long after the Civil War, um, and and the memory was very firm, and, and it's also, it's it's caught up in a lot of other aspects of, of American history at that point, this sort of rapprochement between North and South which also has come at the expense, though, uh, to some extent, of African-Americans in the South. Um, you know, And and their treatment as equal citizens is just out the window as a result of this on some level. So most of the officers are not really thinking of the Civil War socially in that context. They're thinking of it tactically, of what they're learning from the, the battle. And there's a lot to learn there.
0: Okay, so this is, I'm thinking of two points already. And the first one is is that you know when one thinks of a Civil War, you're thinking of rows and rows of people lined up marching towards each other uh, and being sort of cut to shreds whoever attacks by um, gatling guns and superior artillery and that the whole kind of muskets and so on are kind of all a bit of a waste of time really and you think of you know wholesale slaughter and this is sort of the end of the road for the kind of lining up marching towards the enemy kind of approach to battle which has been you know as old as the hills so the question is how relevant is is that to kind of the evolution of, of the battlefield between the 1860s and the 1940s. But the second point, of course, is, is that tactics might change, weaponry might change, but, but certain principles hold true about supply and logistics and command and high ground and all that kind of stuff. So what I suppose, are those similarities valid, and, and what are the differences?
3: I mean, the similarities are absolutely valid. So, the, I mean, these guys have studied, obviously, the Civil War uh, but also World War One, uh, you know, quite famously, some of them had been in it. But even those who hadn't, General Marshall, um, later General Marshall, has created this whole uh, book of sort of incidents from World War One, and so they're they're kind of learning from both wars, I would argue, at the tactical level. Uh, and so, what are they learning from it? I mean, it, actually, the pattern in the Civil War is really similar to World War One, in that yes, of course, there it's it's different in the way they fight, but armies in the open fighting 1914 in a way, this, this kind of maneuver as both are trying to come to grips, uh, eventually on the Marne and all that business too, that leads eventually towards trench warfare to, to armies going to ground. Uh, you see the same kind of pattern in the civil war, of course, there's plenty of maneuver warfare, but you see trench warfare, uh, and especially by 64 and 65, most notably at Petersburg. Um, you know, so, How you deal with fortifications how you deal with firepower how you maneuver your forces logistics like you said jim i mean all of this there's it doesn't change that much on some levels
0: so so the whole kind of sort of being lined up and marching towards a um you know your imminent demise that's very much in the kind of early part of the Civil War, rather than the second half of the Civil War.
3: It tends to be now. You know, we could probably find plenty of tactical battles where you know some units are still fighting a little bit out in the open like that, even later. But for the most part, the pattern is uh, more open fighting, especially like uh, the first battle of Bull Run. Um, you know, some of the some of the the tactical fights are in the Peninsula Campaign. You know, so on and so forth. But even Gettysburg is is a big kind of open maneuver battle, but but it's also sprinkled. With fortifications too, and it's one of the reasons why Pickett's Charge is such a disaster. Uh, it's a frontal attack against a pretty heavily fortified position with artillery support, um, and so in that sense, we could say, well, the Hurtkin Forest is really not all that different on some levels than, than Pickett's Charge. You know, I mean, so there are you know some level of similarities there, but the pattern has been in the Civil War that uh, armies are going to start to go to ground. I mentioned earlier Port Gibson which is sort of an adjunct on some levels of the the Vicksburg campaign, which of course famously becomes a kind of siege battle in which uh, the armies are dug in opposite each other. And Grant tries several times to to kind of breach those Confederate defenses with attacks. And then he realizes I'm going to have to back off and just kind of pound these guys and starve them. And they get in logistics. I mean, so there are times when you had to do that. And then there are other times, um, you know, where, where eventually the armies have to come to grips on some levels. And you, you kind of see it play out that way in the, the Battle of Atlanta, too. Plenty of fortifying, but also in the end, uh, you know, some some maneuver battles, too.
0: Well, and of course, in the Second World War, the sec- the, the story is riddled with tales of people advancing over open ground and being cut to cut to smithereens, you know, whether it be on the Eastern Front or the Western Front. I mean, actually, now I think about it, last week, you know, we were at Jella um, and we were actually looking at the counterattack on the uh, on the eleventh of July from the perspective of the Italians, and we were looking at the thirty fourth Infantry Regiment, the third battalion, as part of the um, uh, Livorno division. And you know they attack from this this feature called the Castelluccio, and they just they've got n- literally no artillery support whatsoever. It hasn't appeared. They've got a few mortars, and that's it. And they are advancing across open ground in the middle of the day. Um, against the Americans and offshore naval guns, and the Americans who, overnight, because Allen has always been keen on night operations, have, have dug in on the key either side of the key roads, and of course they get cut to smithereens. <laughs> I suppose, where's the difference? I mean, it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. But I remember, I remember, you know, my my kind of sort of high school history was. You know, one of the reasons why um, Grant was so successful was because all the Civil War generals on both sides had all been at West Point together and all kind of learned the same rules. But Grant had been a bit of an iconoclast and kind of kept getting in trouble. So didn't didn't do the orthodox route. And that's why he won, because he was introducing different approaches. Is, is there any truth in that, or is that just sort of schoolboy nonsense?
3: There's a kernel of truth. I mean, he was, uh, he was uh, kind of an innovative thinker on some levels, and he was not conventional. And he was not conventional as a person.
0: Okay, so in what way wasn't he conventional? Because he he emerges in the Civil War, doesn't he? He's not, he he's emerges. not at the forefront of the beginning. Exactly. And, and it's kind of by this by the middle, second half of the war that he really starts his star starts to kind of emerge.
3: Yeah, so that I think that requires delving a little bit deeper into Grant's background um, and just getting a sense of who this guy was. You're right, he's, a, he's an iconoclast at West Point. You know, he's got all these demerits. There's this one thing he does really well at West Point, and that's horsemanship. And that sounds funny today, but in those days, that was a big deal for an officer. It really did. And and, uh, and interesting for an infantry officer, too. But um, he's a guy who, during the Mexican-American War, finds his way as a junior officer, a commander, and understanding how to relate and deal with people. The problems for Grant start to set in during peacetime. when you know, And of course, the Army in that era, in the late 1840s and the 50s, you could be in some pretty desolate places where you couldn't take your family and... You could be there for years in this out-of-the-way post. And, and Grant's in that situation. He has a very strong bond with his wife, Julia, um, and a really kind of dysfunctional, kind of difficult relationship with his in-laws, particularly his father-in-law, who's this this Southern guy who uh, who is just very um, confrontational, very much like this guy, Julia, this guy you've married is no good kind of thing. And,
0: and so does it, he's on the Confederate side, uh, you know, uh, politically
3: as he later on. Politically, the father-in-law is. So the Dent family was, they owned a few slaves, not a lot, but they owned a few. They actually, um, they they lived in the St. Louis area, you know, where I live. And uh, so Grant lived here for a time and tried to make his way uh, in in a business here. And it was just a spectacular failure. He has a situation where he eventually, you know, this is is after he's resigned from the army and even that doesn't go smoothly. He's trying to get back from the West Coast and he's uh, basically destitute. Um, and he has to borrow money, ironically, from Simon Bolivar Buckner, of all people, uh, in order to actually get home <laughs> to St. Louis and try and start this business. He's reduced to selling firewood. You can imagine how uncomfortable this is. So it's here's a guy who has a great relationship with his wife, and he's a good father to his kids, but it, with his in-laws, God, there's so much tension, and there's alcohol problems, and... You know, so um, when the war begins, the only reason why Grant is going to have any traction at all is because of his military background. And there's, these guys are so desperately needed on both sides, especially the Union side, because remember, a lot of these guys have frittered off to the South and, you know, have, right. have resigned their commissions. And so even more so, we need guys who are professional soldiers who have that background. So Grant gets an opportunity, very low level, almost at the clerk and administrative level, uh to to kind of run a, a you know a small command in in uh, western illinois and how how old is he in say 1860 uh let's see. how old is he he's he's pushing 40 i think he's he's in his late 30s maybe pushing 40 so he's pretty young okay
0: so pretty young still
3: yeah so he's the right age in a sense i think he's west point class of 46 or something whatever that would make him and, and he doesn't live long. I mean, he died in 1885, so he was in his 60s. So, yeah, I mean, and, and he's just, he's really frustrated at first because mostly what he's doing is just paper pushing. So he's the classic guy who wants to get in combat, and it's a while before he has that opportunity, but when he does, you know, he's basically at the regiment and brigade command level, and it's very clear that he knows what he's doing, that he's a fighter, to anybody who's watching. Now, the problem Grant will have during the Civil War is, is this sort of frenemy in Henry Halleck. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him, but uh, Henry Halleck was the, the uh, U.S. commander, you know, like in the Western theater for a time. And eventually, um, you know, he had, he had really aspired to what Grant was going to become, like general of the armies kind of thing and control mm-hmm. of the battles. Halleck and Grant had known each other a long time. Halleck was sort of his sponsor, but also his sabotager, Uh, depending on what they were talking about. Um, And so Halleck, eventually, Lincoln's going to see him for what he is, not a fighter, but a really good administrator who acts in the chief of staff role, not the same way George Marshall did, but certainly as a guy who helps run things in Washington. Before that, though, he is sort of overseeing Grant, and then he's chagrined by his success, (laughs) Grant's success, He's like, oh my gosh, this is a real rival now to my power, and I'd better wow. sidetrack him if I can. So it was, very, in a way, very MacArthur-esque, like what MacArthur does to Eichelberger after Buna. Uh, like, oh my gosh, this guy could be a threat to my publicity. I'd better backbench him, you know. In this case, Halleck is even more internecine, you know, in saying, okay, I'm going to spread rumors now that Grant's drinking again, and you know, I'm, and that he's botched the Shiloh battle, the Battle of Shiloh, which, by at that point, in April 1862. Was the biggest battle that we know of ever fought on this continent, uh, and it was a horrifying preview into what the Civil War is going to be. So, so Grant has to to struggle against that kind of you know <laughs> fire in the rear in a way, in a, in a way that Eisenhower I don't think ever really does. Uh, Eisenhower at least has that sponsor in George Marshall always, where he knows he's got Ike's back, and so Ike's challenge, of course, is dealing with all these egos and the international thing that Grant doesn't have to worry about in the Civil War. He doesn't have to worry about working with allies the way that Eisenhower does. But I'll say this, Eisenhower directly draws from Grant and his interpersonal skills, his modesty especially, as an asset. And I I think that's important to understand why Ike does this.
0: So Grant is fundamentally, you know, he's he's a good human being in a way that Eisenhower is a good human being. You know, he has empathy, humanity, all that kind of stuff. He's not just a kind of... Roughnecks rascal.
3: Oh, no. And, and you know, and of course, it doesn't mean he's perfect. Grant definitely does have drinking problems at various points in his life. But he's, he's a guy who could control his drinking under the right circumstances. If he was with his family, uh, then it's completely different. Or if he's engaged in, in, uh, in leadership during war and also during the presidency. Um, if he's off on his own, melancholic, you know, aimless, then that's when the bottle comes into play. Eisenhower, of course, doesn't deal with that. But the interesting thing about this, too. He just smokes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they both did. And, and, of course, both to their detriment. There's another parallel. Um, mm. Grant's life is cut short by his affinity for cigars because he dries a, dies of throat cancer in the 1880s that almost certainly is wow. caused by, by heavy c- cigar smoking. Eisenhower was a four-pack-a-day cigarette smoker um, who eventually quit. But, but I think it's fair to say that probably took some time off his life, you know, even though he lived to, you know, he lived to 70 well,
0: days, a hell of a lot, isn't it? Uh,
3: that's just, I just can't imagine how any could survive that personally, but, um, that's just me, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the Eisenhower actually read Grant's memoirs and that's, that's, what's famous about Grant on some levels is he wrote these memoirs that are just such uh, a model of clarity and, uh, and so beautifully written. Uh, Eisenhower was inspired by that. He read them in the 1920s, uh with the recommendation of his mentor, Fox Connor, who said, "Hey, you know, you need to read Grant's memoirs. You're going to learn a lot from that." And then when Eisenhower after World War II, when he's famous and all that, writes Crusade in Europe, he went back before that and reread Grant's memoirs as an example of how to do this. So these two guys um are unique among a lot of the generals in that they needed no ghostwriter. They were both beautiful huh. writers. They were good communicators, and that was a serious asset for both of them. So Grant uh, or Eisenhower really looked to Grant um, consciously, and I and I think I think both during World War II, both consciously and unconsciously, sought to kind of imitate him. And that wasn't true of all the officers of that generation, many of whom had been steeped on Lee and and his greatness in the Old South, and Grant as a butcher and all this kind of southern arguments about you know what the war had been. Uh, and, and the example of the latter is MacArthur. Even though MacArthur's formative military influence is his father, who's on the U.S. side in uh, in the Civil War, really, I think MacArthur on some levels thought of himself as a, as a Southerner. Uh, and, and really, of course, and his mother was around longer and a greater influence on him. And so I, one of the things I found out in my, my research that's just sort of cringeworthy is um, MacArthur has this <laughs> incident with Douglas Southall Freeman and um if you've never heard of him, he was uh, he wrote a book called Lee's Lieutenants, which is mm-hmm. you know fascinating and he wrote a biography of General Lee. He was he had a history PhD but he, he became a journalist in Richmond um, and got the Pulitzer Prize and, and was just really really one of the great historians of his time. And as you can imagine, you know this is a this is a white Southerner, of Virginian, writing in the nineteen twenties, thirties, forties. Yeah, I mean, certainly we would look back on his his work today and say, you know, there's a major blind spot in relation to African Americans and the social context of the war and all that. All that's true, but it's still really amazing work. And and so MacArthur had read that, and and Freeman, towards the end of World War II, was coming to uh, to MacArthur's headquarters in Tokyo, in the occupation. And he planned to write a kind of parallel book, MacArthur's lieutenants kind of thing. So um, <laughs> I found the correspondence between uh, MacArthur and Freeman. And Freeman hints in one of the, the letters, you know, uh, you, you remind me of... Uh, of lee and jackson you know the way you've operated and and that was like the ultimate compliment like oh my god those are my gods you know kind of thing and so macarthur writes back this this really kind of obsequious unctuous reply and says oh those are my masters who i've learned from and you know his his typical macarthur language And, and and then he's like and if i might presume to 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 write in you know this comparison you've made into your book here he actually literally writes a part of the book for freeman he hopes
0: <laughs> it's like that's extraordinary isn't it's it? just
3: can you imagine someone writing to you and saying here's a, a paragraph i've written that i want you to put into your book i mean it's uh, like, no
0: i can't imagine it, it at all <laughs> it's just
3: like what <laughs> uh, so you see the sort of unctuous kind of attempt by, by macarthur and then on top of it when freeman visits um he sits down with heikelberger and john mccloy and john mccloy was a uh, Uh, like an undersecretary of war in the war department. He's one of these guys who's profoundly influential on American military and national security policy for a long period of time. But is isn't that well known. So he's just an insider. Okay. So he's sitting down to a meal with Eichelberger and Freeman and Freeman's trying to gather all this information, uh, you know, about MacArthur and his lieutenants. And so Freeman asks Eichelberger, he says, okay, so at what point um, during the Buna campaign, did General MacArthur you know, like locate his headquarters right there, uh, like on the front lines in Buna? And it's so incredibly awkward because MacArthur was never at the front, uh, but he made it seem like he was through his communiques. And so the average person back home, including someone as not knowledgeable as Freeman, actually thought MacArthur was leading on the front lines at Buna. And so Eichelberger's in a tough position now because he doesn't want to throw his commander under the bus but he also doesn't want to mislead this guy who he respects too. Of course, you know, he's red Freeman. And eventually, you know, know, when Freeman's pressing the point, Eichelberger has to say, well, general MacArthur was never there. And he tries to sugarcoat it by saying, you know, it was so swampy. It was so impassable that it wasn't a place for a theater commander. So he tries to kind of soften the blow. But when Freeman (laughs) heard that he was, his enthusiasm for the project completely went away and the book never happened because I think he thought, Uh, A lot of the stuff I've been seeing coming out of MacArthur's headquarters, uh, I can't trust it. Maybe there's not the story here that I thought there was. And also, too, I think he had picked up on the fact that unlike Lee, MacArthur would not have any room in his closet for sharing the historical limelight with others, you know, with Eichelberger, with Kruger, all of his commanders, the way Lee is going to share the limelight with Jackson and so many others who had served under him.
0: It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And when we think about all those generals, I mean, most of them did go to West Point. There's a few who didn't. Terry De Allen, who, who, who goes and then gets kicked out. And he, he does stand out for being different, doesn't he? Because he's, he's not a spick and span. He's, he's very much a kind of one of those generals who, who kind of lives for his men, sees all men as equal, and, you know, happy talking to a grunt as he is a fellow general or something. But most of them have been, haven't they? I mean, who, who else hasn't been to West Point? I can't think, really. Well, George Marshall.
3: I mean, there's a- Oh, of course. I mean, that's the- And and Walter Kruger. Uh, Walter Kruger hasn't even been to college, for gosh sakes, and hasn't even graduated high school, believe it or not. He goes
0: up through the ranks, doesn't he?
3: Yeah, up through the ranks. And so, you know, there were a pretty decent number, although West Pointers dominated general officer ranks. There were a pretty decent number of others, and obviously, starting with George Marshall himself, who was a VMI guy- you know, and, and I think George Marshall was very conscious of the odds he was working against to become chief of staff.
0: VMI is what well, Virginia Military.
3: Yeah, Virginia Military Institute in uh, in Lexington, Virginia, and boy, you you could not find uh, a sort of sort of heart of the South uh, kind of institution, with this possible exception of the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, than, <laughs> yeah. uh, than VMI. Um, so. Marshall is kind of steeped in in that tradition but I think also very fair-minded in a lot of ways but uh, but yeah so Allen I think is interesting too because you know let's face it he has a latino background you know the way we would think of it now his mother was mexican wasn't she uh yes exactly and so and that's very american because uh, you know there are a lot of americans who have that kind of dual heritage uh, especially in the southwest or you know in texas where he had, where he, i think he had come from so the alan i think is more unconventional on, the, on that level in part because of that one of the things i love about alan and i don't know that he learned this from the civil war but his affinity for night attacks and night combat i think if the army would have listened more to him we would have been far more effective from world war ii through vietnam um and night ops are tough to run of course there's a ton of headaches and problems we all know that but i think there would have been a better you know, I think that it would have been an asset in the long run to, to to focus on this area. Eichelberger does some of it, too. And I don't know that he knew about what Alan was doing in the European theater, but there are times when, when Eichelberger will embrace night ops, too, and I think quite profitably. So you do see some who are bucking the trend a little bit. but By and large, most weren't. Uh,
0: well, let's just hold those thoughts, John, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McRispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour.
2: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Well, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus, and we're talking the influence of the American Civil War on US commanders in the Second World War. So what is it that they're learning? What what, what is a Second World War era general, when he's at West Point or the Virginia Military Institute, or even the Citadel for that matter, in kind of 1910 or 12, what is it that they're learning from study of command in the civil war is it is it is it logistics is it supplies is it you know wh- wh- what are those key lessons well i think the biggest thing they're learning is the deep dive tactical stuff
3: and the, like the on-site decision making you know like um like let's say we're on a gettysburg staff ride circa 1910 right. or something um you know we're really thinking very carefully about the various decisions lee makes uh, the decision to engage uh you know to, to turn this into a larger battle his attempt to try and uh, and envelop the the U.S. Army forces there uh, to basically do what Hannibal had done at Caney, which is what Western right. commanders have been chasing for generations. So I think you probably would have learned a lot about that. And of course, the whole Pickett's Charge thing would have obsessed you. Um, <laughs> you know. So I think they would have been learning much more of the tactics than the logistics, though certainly the logistics would have been there, um, especially if you were uh, studying the Vicksburg campaign or whatever. So Well, I think one thing to remember is, you know, West Point in that era of the early 20th century was still primarily like a a, a civil engineering kind of institution. So the bulk of your classes would have been kind of on the STEM side of the house, but you were seeing, you know, more, you know, military tactical kind of instruction and then eventually military history in MacArthur. I mean, I've been banging up MacArthur, of course, as I often do, but to his credit, he really modernizes West Point as superintendent immediately after World War One, introducing more humanities and social sciences, and, and thus this would have been more military history. So this is maybe a little bit younger generation of officers who are getting a little bit more of that instruction, who are like the Gavins of the world, who are coming of age in the 20s. Um, and and then, you know, the, the other younger generation of like Abrams and Westmoreland and so on and so forth in the 30s. But yeah, so, and, and part of it too like let's say you were at West Point in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, or whatever. Like Michael Berger, it's part of it just the avocation, just the fascination right. with military history that most professional soldiers seem to have. And I think that's that would have been so part of it would have been just study on their own as well.
0: Yeah, and I guess also it's it's a big event, isn't it in in American history in in the way that Second World War is now the big event in kind of European Western history. Eighty years on. 50 years on it's absolutely there isn't it it's it is yeah, because actually you know america traditionally hasn't fought big wars and mm-hmm. you know they're kind of skirmishes and stuff and you know big military operations are are anathema to to the united states military i mean it's just not part and parcel of what what america does and then of course you've got the massive retrenchment after the first world war so suddenly america is in in world war Two, and it's got to up its game in a very big way, and it's got to think a lot bigger. So it's only inevitable that you would go back to the biggest war that the United States has been involved in, absolutely. which, of course, is a civil war. And, it, and I think it remains, doesn't it, the, the war with the greatest number of American casualties, obviously, both sides. But even so, you know, that, that, that's suggestive of the huge scale of it and, it. and it really is sort of pan-national, isn't it?
3: It is. A, it was the kind of war and conflict that it was hard to sit out. If you were a northerner, it was possible that maybe you wouldn't have been deeply affected. I guess that's possible. If you were a southerner, white, black, whatever, there's no way. Uh, And so this generation of officers by the 20th century, almost all of them have have grown out of that and been formed by it. And so they've had fathers or in the case of uh, Patton, grandfathers, you know, who have been involved in this thing. They've heard the stories, they've been steeped in all this tradition, and of course, they're military-oriented anyway, so, you know, I mean, Eichelberger, as a kid, used to, one of his greatest memories was when his father would get together with his uh, fellow Civil War veterans, and Eichelberger, as you can imagine this, like, as an 8-, 9-, 10-year-old kid would just sit there, and he would just sit there, just fascinated and steeped in all this, and his father had a library of books, and he devoured these books, many of which, of course, are about the Civil War. Um, this does not make him unique at all. Uh, you know, and I would argue too, somebody like him and many others, uh, would have studied Emory Upton, who I, who I mentioned earlier. And so Emory Upton, you know, this is a guy who graduated West Point, I think in 1861. So that's how young he is during the civil war. And yet he's a general by the end of the war. And he's really arguably the U S army's foremost and most thoughtful tactician who really, He's thinking about how we maneuver and attack in an era of suffocating firepower, which which you have in the Civil War. And of course, nothing compared to what you're going to have, of course, but these lessons about how you apply pressure, how you maneuver, how you do coordination of combined arms and and where you attack at the weak point, all of that is going to be very applicable going forward. Upton, I would argue, is really the foremost thinker on, on many levels. And so those who were better educating themselves as professional soldiers. And I'm including Kruger into this too, who's self-taught.
0: And reads his history.
3: Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, Kruger's a total autodidact. I mean, he hasn't had the formal schooling, but he knows more than a lot of his colleagues who have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so often that's a way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And, and just for the for, for those sort of um, and those people who don't who don't really know much about the Civil War except that it happened and that it's all about slavery, it's obviously a lot more nuanced than that. It's a lot, you know, it's it's about industrial North and and a more kind of rural South. It's it's about ways of life. It's about being pushed around by the North and the, the South resenting it. There's a whole host of different causes and reasons. That, that it escalates. But but in the early years of the Civil War, it it, it seems like it's a confederacy that militarily, at any rate, is having the running. You know, they're having the kind of battlefield successes and stuff. And the big turning point, isn't it, is is, is Gettysburg in July 1863, because that's the first really major battle success that the Union have, because they've had a, a host of Defeats, haven't they and things that well yes and going no uh
3: because it depends where we're talking about in the east famously of course the north has had a rough time uh you know where, where lee's army in northern virginia has won a lot of tactical victories and uh now in the west it's gone quite differently and, and this is where his reputation comes from and so. This is where Grant's reputation comes from, winning the Battle of Shiloh, um, you know, eventually, you know, just completely outmaneuvering the, the Confederates on many levels, strangling Vicksburg. Um, the, the North captures New Orleans pretty early on, and that's an enormous blow to, to the Confederacy. Um, you know, you have um, battles like Murfreesboro and Chickamauga, so on and so forth, you know, that are that are bloody or uh, and inconclusive, but by and large, the, the North is kind of having its way in the Western theater. It's the Eastern theater, of course, where it's otherwise. And one of the reasons is uh, difference-making commanders like Jackson and Lee.
0: This is Stonewall Jackson who's killed at Chancellorsville just at the point of victory, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it one of those moments? Yeah, so here's what happens with that, speaking of night operations. Uh, so Stonewall Jackson
3: has emerged as a result of his brilliant tactical brilliance in the, the first Battle of Bull Run and, and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really one of the key Corps commanders. So the first Bull Run had been uh, July 1861, uh, you're yep. going to have the Peninsula campaign that takes place in the spring of 1862, like, and eventually it spills into to May and June. Um, and then, you know, th- at that point, Jackson is tying down an entire Union army that's supposed to be moving towards Richmond via land while this other group is coming up. On the, the the James Peninsula or the York Peninsula, excuse me, you know. So Jackson does really brilliant work there. So he, you could almost compare him to a Patton in a way, in terms of his aggressiveness and his eccentricities. And Patton loves him, doesn't he? Patton loves him, and so do generations of American, you know, military people to this day. Uh, you know what, though? Jackson's a weird dude on on a lot of levels. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was Mass an instructor. He was, and I think of this as a professor. He was a professor at VMI. And his entire like educational approach was forcing his students to just memorize stuff. And I think, oh my god, that'd be like the worst kind of teaching you could imagine. So he was really, honestly, kind of hated as a teacher because he was just weird and idiosyncratic and tyrannical, and he's very religious. Um, but he's one of these guys who who has always had a great deal of acumen. And when war comes along, that's when you see it. He is he's a big believer in training. And I think that's another thing that, that as a World War II officer, you would take from Jackson saying, you know what? It's really going to suck while we train. You're not going to like me. But once we're in battle, you're going to see the advantage we've got over the enemy. Jackson was really the king of that on, on a lot of levels. So uh, at Chancellorsville, what happens is that, you know, here's a here's a Confederate army that's outnumbered two to one and is basically caught in a vice grip between uh, the Army of the Potomac that has carried out this incredible uh, design to do just this, to, to capture uh, the army of the Northern Virginia in this vice, the the, the Union commander, is Joe Hooker. Who gave the name to Hookers, didn't he? He did, exactly. And he would be, honestly, he would be thought of as one of the great Union commanders today. Not quite as religious. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, and colorful and a lot of, but he's really sharp, but he loses his nerve. Huge sideburns.
0: Didn't he have huge sideburns? No, that's
3: uh, Ambrose Burnside. Where that's where sideburns comes from. He's a completely different story, very interesting in his level too. But Hooker Hooker has this whole concept of how he's going to outmaneuver Lee and, and, and sort of vice grip the, the Army in Northern Virginia, and he's got it, but he loses his nerve. He doesn't press the attack, and he kind of digs in his Army to defend, and that gives Lee and Jackson an opportunity to counterattack. And so what they famously do, Jackson does this sort of flanking maneuver over the course of a, of a long day. Uh, and this is you know early May 1863, and then he he hits the entire western flank of the army, the Potomac at dusk or near dusk, and so he began night attacks. Hard to do in the Civil War, of course, much harder to do than during World War II. Um, so Jackson is trying to to kind of ride forward and recon to figure out when and if he can press the attack and whatnot. Um, he's mistaken the enemy by a, a Confederate guard or skirmisher or whatever and he's shot you know so there's a friendly fire incident perhaps the most famous in american military history yeah um he's only he's wounded so it looks like he's going to survive they had to remove his left arm i think it was his left arm um you know but that's happened all the time in the civil war these guys had limbs chopped off and they're back commanding sometime later it's crazy um so it looked like he was going to survive but eventually pneumonia set in so Lee wins arguably his greatest victory at Chancellorsville, and in part because of Jackson, but the greatest casualty is, you know, Jackson, and he and he can never really replace him after that. And you see it at Gettysburg. That's that's one of the manifestations.
0: But am I right in saying that the kind of post Gettysburg, which is July 1863? The kind of material weight of the North just starts to kind of kick in a bit more heavily. And, and this is where the sieges come in.
3: It already has. And here's what I, because I, I teach a course on the Civil War and Reconstruction. And uh, one of the things I try to really impress upon my students is that it's different from World War II in the sense that like, you know, after our great turning point battles, the allies are, the percentages are really with them and they're probably going to win the war as long as the Normandy invasion succeeds, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah But yeah. But in the Civil War, even after Gettysburg, the Confederacy still could have won. Uh, in 1864, it, you know, it was an election year in the U.S. and the North. And, you know, it seems probable that Lincoln would be defeated and a new party would come in and cut a deal with the South and the Confederacy. So there were two ways that the Confederacy could have achieved victory, foreign recognition uh, or just a change in politics or the northern public not caring enough about the Union and saying, basically, to let the South go. So the difference is capturing Atlanta and when Sherman does that in, uh, in September 1864. Um, and, and that's what really coalesces northern public opinion to say, okay, let's continue with Lincoln's vision of holding the Union together and completely abolishing slavery and trying to create some sort of multiracial republic. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. For, for those like Eisenhower who were studying this at, a, at the larger strategic level, I think they learned much. I think for maybe the average general officer or whatever who's coming out of West Point, they're thinking more tactically. You know, what kind of maneuver did, did Jackson right, right, make right. at Chancellorsville or that kind of thing? And that's valuable. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think there was enough emphasis in that era on the socio-cultural, strategic and economic context of the war. Uh, and certainly nothing on the racial side, which is which is really the key to the war.
0: But but the point is, at every single level, when you look at the Civil War, it's got a long shadow over the generals of, the, of World War Two, clearly. And it's interesting, oh, isn't it? Because because you know, obviously, the British commanders don't have that; they have a different kind of heritage. They have a heritage of colonial wars, of course, the First World War, particularly, and it, it affects them in different ways, doesn't it? I mean, the the heritage of the First World War is is the slaughter on the Western Front. And and the avowal never to never to kind of do that again, which is of course why they're all backing air power and anything that that reduces the number of infantry divisions to a bare minimum. I mean, you know, this is something that also that the uh, that the Americans buy into. Um, it's just so fascinating, isn't it? You know how heritage comes back and and shapes you and helps your decision making and affects your decision making in future conflicts. I mean, really. Just endlessly fascinating. I mean, I've I got this sort of feeling that we've vaguely just scraped the very top <laughs> exactly. of the very surface of, of yeah. this. I mean, it is fascinating it is fascinating, and then all those other, those other conflicts and stuff that, that you know so many of the, the, the junior civil war commanders end up you know, fighting on the frontier, don't they, and then later on at the end of the century, and you know you think of the custers and, and so on, and
3: oh, for sure, well, and like Joe Wheeler who is on the Confederate side in the Civil War, and 30 years later, he's one of the key commanders in the Spanish-American War in Cuba, fighting Joe Wheeler. (laughs) And this then was a kind of rapprochement between North and South. And that's that's the nice side of the story. The really terrible side of the story is it comes at the expense of racial equality, and it comes at the price of enormous racial apartheid and Jim Crow and all that.
0: Yeah, yeah, which takes beyond the Second World War to resolve. Oh, yeah.
3: Uh, exactly. And that's why the Second World War, I argue, of course, is more important than the Civil War, in the sense, because it really uh, comes to grip with the, the issue of race in America. The, the Civil Rights Movement is part and parcel of the Civil War, that what we think of as the Civil Rights Movement. It wasn't new. I'm not saying it's new then, but it's much more effective. And there's a great deal more momentum as a result of World War II because of socio-cultural changes, economic changes brought by the war. The Civil War, and this is this is Grant's biggest disappointment as president, is the ultimate failure of Reconstruction. Um, Grant does arguably um, more for African Americans than any single American commander, politician, person, or whatever uh, he attempts to do more, per- perhaps even more than Lincoln. Um, it's just that you have this enormous resistance and blowback, particularly among white Southerners, especially Confederate veterans many of whom are involved in this little thing called the Ku Klux Klan um, that is really resisting reconstruction, violence, all this kind of stuff. And you have a Northern public whites primarily who are saying, you know what? We kept the union together. That's enough. We don't really want racial equality here in New York or Chicago or wherever. Why do we, why are we going to pursue this any further? And so they could kind of pretend that this, this problem didn't exist, at least for a couple of generations, but it's the 20th century wars that changed that whole dynamic. So yeah, yeah we are scratching the surface because there, there's so many different layers to this. Uh, and the way I'm talking about it now is not the way you and I would have talked about it in 1920, you know, or 1940, sure. probably, uh, you know what I mean? So, and I think that's partly what's so interesting about it. Uh, I'm sure there's probably people who are seeing things we don't.
0: Well, we should absolutely do a couple of episodes on the effect of World War II on the civil rights movement. I mean, that would oh, be yeah. just so absolutely. interesting. For sure. But I think we need to wait for Al to come back for that one because I know he wouldn't want to miss out on that. Well, John, I mean that that's that's been just really, really interesting. I, I think sometimes it is important to kind of go back in back in time and go back in history to kind of contextualize the the period that one is looking at. And that's just, you know, that's just a sort of case in point. Absolutely fascinating. So thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we will be back next week. At oh, some point, we've got to talk about Stillwell. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, maybe next week. I, I Man, I love talking Stillwell. He's fascinating.
0: <laughs> yeah, isn't he just? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, anyway, good to see you as always. And um, chat to you next week. Cheerio, everyone.
3: See ya.